Amen, church. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Spence. Thank you, worship team. I hope when we get to the end of the message, after we see the, the choices that are before us, that will be uh, each of our, that'll be the prayer for each of us. Uh, give me Jesus. Before we get to the message, I want to just address the news from this past week. You know, buried deeper into the news is this whole thing that happened in Haiti. Terrible earthquake there. 2,000 died. That's not nearly as many as back in 2010 earthquake. But uh, as a response and just trying to be generous, that we, we, as a church, we sent a monetary gift to our partner called Filter of Hope. They will help provide clean water in Haiti and, you know, things like cholera. Is such a uh, dangerous thing there. So that, that's going on in Haiti right now. But in Afghanistan, that's a whole other story. What a terrible uh, situation there on a number of levels. I can't address all of them, but let me just address the, the Christian one. And that is uh, where you have the spread of militant, radical Islamic Taliban associated with other groups, uh, there is real danger there for the Christians in the church. And this is going to be a time where they're going to need strength to stand up to terrible, terrible opposition. I don't know if you've thought about that or read about that or heard about that, but I'd like to take a moment and pray for, I guess we could take a whole half hour and just pray for the world, right? And our, for our own lives too. But let me uh, pray for us. Could you join me please in prayer? And now, God, uh, we just come before you as the sovereign Lord of the universe who is not taken by surprise, nothing. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that in many cases is run by uh, the enemy, Satan, and sin runs amok, it seems. Would you please, God, bring comfort to the families who are suffering loss in Haiti? It's so difficult. And I pray that just even our gift could help to save some lives and preserve hearts for you as they see the hope that's given in the name of Christ. And then in Afghanistan, it's just, uh, I mean, there are churches, there are Christians who are going underground because they are so afraid right now. Would you, this is just, so much of this is parallel with the book of Revelation. Would you please, God, uh, give them strength to stand strong to stand firm, to be faithful to you, to keep their eyes upon you, that there is such a thing as eternity, and being faithful now makes a difference eternally. So God, please protect, guard, give strength. May justice be done. May your will be done. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I just feel like there's so many other things we could pray for. You know, as I, it just seemed to work out so naturally as I wanted to begin this message, um, the idea of standing strong in the face of opposition when it's really hard. Uh, I don't know if you know this name, but this is August Landmesser. He was a German living in the time of the Hitler reign. And um, he took a stand. And this is a picture of August Landmesser. See how everyone is giving the Heil Hitler salute, and there he is with his arms crossed. How about that? You think he'd pay for doing that? Yes, he did. He ended up marrying a lady by the name of Irma Eckler. She was a Jewish lady, and she was killed in the concentration camps. Uh, he went on to be imprisoned and then died in forced military duty. But the thing to notice is that he, he did not raise the hand. He did not bend the knee. 
It makes me think of something that uh, came out in 1978, those of you who may remember. Do you remember the name Keith Green? He was a singer-songwriter back in the day and then tragically died in a, in a plane accident. But his second album came out called No Compromise. And on the cover of the album, there's a man, a figure, a, a cartoon figure, standing there with everyone else bowed prostrate between, prostrate, not prostrate, prostrate before uh, the man riding through. The, and this is, this is how, see, you can see the figure there on the right-hand side. That's Mordecai standing there. And it says, all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Isn't that something when somebody just says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going I'm to do what's right. I don't care about the results, right? Every spring, my wife and I, just like you, we receive, you know, uh, invitations to, to graduation parties, and so we'll put together a card with a little gift, and then inside every card for the last, I don't know how many years, we always put the same two verses that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it says this, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. Isn't that awesome? I just... Ah. Here are, these, here are these high school students headed off to college or headed off to take a job somewhere, and they're going to be faced with the challenge. Do I, do I just go with, with what everyone else is doing, or do I stand strong? Am I to be faithful? And that's our challenge today as we look at Revelation chapters 17 and 18. <laughs> Whether you're a, a Christian in Afghanistan or a kid headed out of high school to somewhere, we're called to be faithful. As we get into these two chapters, 17 and 18, um, it, it's, uh, it really is all about standing firm and being faithful. And uh, some of the metaphors and, and uh, symbolism and images that are used are striking. We'll get into some of that. But it's all about how do you face worldly opposition? How do you face the world system that stands opposed to God? I'm going to use the word world system a number of times. What I mean by that is this. What I don't mean is that God hates the world. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? God loves the world. But there is such a thing as the world system. Economically, culturally, the world is, has set itself up against God, against the values of the kingdom of God. So that's what I mean by that. And so the, the, how is chapter 17? It begins with some imagery and symbolism that is rather provocative as God helps us understand what we need to be careful of. And this is how it starts. It goes like this. Come with me, an angel says to John, who's writing, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. Wow, that's not a term you read in the Bible very often. Periodically you do. But why use the word prostitute here? It's because it reflects, it reflects the world system. It reflects um, the... the, the uh, the desire to, to allure us into doing what everyone else is doing. And in fact, uh, John reaches way back into history and uses the name of a city that reflects the life of a prostitute and the world system. And this is what he writes. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, on the prostitute's forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. You see the name Babylon. That's not a city that's around anymore. But why use the term Babylon? Well, Babylon is actually from the word Babel, and maybe you can think back to the book of Genesis. 
Um, just when things couldn't get any worse, as sin enters the world from Genesis chapter 3 up through chapter 10, now comes chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. And, you know, people were told to go out, spread, spread throughout the world and make God's name known. But instead, they build this giant tower and try to make a name for themselves. And instead of worshiping God, they worship themselves. And instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the created. And as a result, they reject, they absolutely reject God's rule and reign in their lives. And so... Uh, when we read about Babylon in these two chapters, it represents the world forces, the world system that is in direct opposition to the kingdom of God, that's in direct opposition to what we are called to live for as Christ followers. Do you stand up to it or not? Dr. Mounts puts it like this. The prostitute is a great system of godlessness that leads people away from the worship of God and to their own destruction. It leads people away from the worship of God. We are called to worship God. But Babylonianism, the world system, is all around us, and quite frankly, it is difficult to stand up to it, to be a Mordecai, to be an August landmesser. So how do you do that? As John was receiving this vision from Jesus, I wonder if his mind went back to how Jesus himself lived in the world, but navigated in the world, navigated the world in such that he did not let the world system pollute his own life. And, and I, at one point, and John records this in his gospel that he wrote earlier in chapter 17, Jesus prayed a prayer just before he went to the cross. And the, and the prayer, do you remember this? It, go, it goes like this. I'm not asking you to take them, my followers, that's his original disciples, but also you and me. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Jesus is praying, God, I don't want you to take them out of the world. My followers are to be uh, agents of change. They are to transform the world. They're to be difference makers around the world. I just don't want the world system to, to influence their lives. They're to influence the world. Some of you are boaters, right? I, I used to be a boater. I used to actually work for the Division of Watercraft for a couple summers, and we would teach classes, and the Coast Guard teach classes, and in those classes, what you learn are, are the rules of the waterway, right? That's important to know, the rules of, of, the, of the waterway. But I can tell you something that you never had to learn in the, from the Coast Guard, or, or you never had to read in a book. It's simply this. You, you want your boat in the water. You don't want water in your boat. That's, pretty, that's pretty, pretty basic, I think. So Jesus prayed that, that we would be, as followers, that we would be in the world. That's important. But we would not be influenced by the world system. We would not let the world get into us. John, in his first letter, wrote, wrote these words. Um, Everything in the world... The, the lust of the flesh, he breaks it, he puts it into categories, the things we struggle with, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of that doesn't come from God, it comes from the world. So do not love the world. Be in the world, but be careful. So, why be careful? And it's simply because of this. The world is seductive, and it is so incredibly attractive. And let me show you how John himself is drawn into the world just for a few moments. Um, you know, it, it's so easy to believe that the, the world system and what it offers can satisfy our deep souls. This is what John writes. 
The woman wore purple. This is the prostitute again, representing the world system, Babylonianism. The world wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. I mean, how strikingly beautiful is that, right? In her hand, she held a gold goblet, also beautiful, but full of obscenities and impurities of immorality. She was beautiful, attractive, but what do we know? What do we know? Well, what Jesus taught a long time ago. On the outside, someone can look great, but on the inside, there is a spirit of rebellion and unresponsiveness toward God. And oftentimes, that which is in the world looks great. It looks awesome. But on the inside, what is it really? We're taught. We're taught to not judge a book by its cover. We need to look on the inside. External appearance that's one thing, but what's on the inside, that's a whole nother thing. Now, what's interesting is John is writing this, and he's staring at this, this strikingly attractive woman, represents Babylon and the world system. Uh, this, is, this is what happens. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. Why are you so amazed, the angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. So, John clearly sees how, again, strikingly attractive she is. This is the nature of the world system, the nature of this woman. And yet he cannot, he is, he is awed, he is amazed, he is astonished, and he cannot take his eyes off of this. And finally, the angel finally says, why are you so amazed? Stop staring. Now, that, that's both interesting and telling because John, is, he was in the inner core with Jesus, one of, the, one of the three that Jesus spent the most time with. And yet here's John wrestling with staring at this person. He is being seduced by the world. If he can be seduced, how much more careful do we need to be? Um, perhaps John's mind traveled back to another time where Jesus was teaching the disciples, and Matthew records it in his gospel. And it's, a, it's, a, it's Jesus basically sharing how easy it is to be seduced by the world. And this is what Jesus writes, or says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, nobody's bashing money. Money is good. Money is a gift from God. You know, when you look at the Bible, what you see is are there, there are principles. God gives us principles for making money, for giving money, for saving money, for spending money. It's all right there. Money is a good thing. Money is a gift from God. We want money, and that's, a, that's good. But the, the danger, of course, is what Paul writes, is the love of money is the root of all evil. We can let it get into our hearts, and we begin to think, if I just have a little bit more, then I'll be satisfied. And money can get me this, and money can get me that, and it's just over, over time, we just, it's, just, it's like a roller coaster that's just very hard to get off of. You can get us so many things, and it can make us happy. It can make us, money can make us happy, things can make us happy, there's nothing wrong with that, but the problem is we begin to believe that it will satisfy my soul. 
You might feel that, but you'll feel it only for a little while. Now, that leads us to why does God refer to Babylon as a prostitute, or to the prostitute as Babylon? Why, did, why does God refer to the world system that way? A, a, a prostitute may promise love, may promise intimacy, but will never be able to deliver. There's no lasting satisfaction, nothing for the soul. And so what happens after chapter 17, you get into chapter 18, and, you see, and we're moving toward the time when Jesus comes again. Uh, we see the, the, the world system go away completely. And that's what chapter 18 is. It is like a, it's like a funeral dirge for the world system, for this prostitute, for Babylonianism. It, it's like a, uh, it's, it's the last rites mass. It's like a requiem for the world system. In fact, this is what it says in chapter 18. The fancy things you love so much are gone. They cry, all your luxuries and splendor are gone forever, never to be yours again. The, the things that the people will have put their hope in look to to satisfy their souls, one day will all be gone. What promised to deliver never really did, like the prostitute. So the world will seduce us into thinking uh, that it can deliver, uh, but we need to ask ourselves these questions in light of that, in light of that potential seduction. Here's some good questions. Is my ultimate hope in the world to come, or is it in what I can grasp right now? These texts also force us to ask this question. Is Jesus my master, or am I master by something that is fleeting and will never deliver on the promise? Good question. It's just to pause and think through. First question, is my ultimate hope in the world to come? Am I, am I wired to, to, to think in light of eternity? Or is it just on what I can grasp right now? Is Jesus my master, or am I master by something that is fleeting and will never deliver on its promises? Now, chapter 17 is really, really, of all the chapters in Revelation, it's probably the top of the top two. It's the hardest to understand because there's so much imagery, there's so much symbol, very difficult to understand. Um, in fact, uh, this is what John writes. This calls for a man of understanding. Other texts say this calls for a person of great wisdom. It takes wisdom to understand what John is right, what's being revealed to John. And uh, it, it, all boiled down, this is what we're to learn from chapter 17. The world will put up a vicious fight. The world system will, will try to seduce our souls. But Jesus will be victorious in the end. What I want to show you here in just a moment, just for fun, we don't have time to go into all of this, is some of the imagery and some of the symbolism that shows up in this chapter that, that attempts to help us understand just how vicious the fight is that Satan is putting on. You know, one of the reasons in any venue, whatever it is, the Bible or whatever, the reason we use metaphors and the reason we use um, imagery and symbolism is because we can't possibly describe the indescribable. And so what John sees here is just indescribable. So he's trying to use these symbols to help us understand just how vicious the fight of the enemy is. 
<laughs> and so Chuck Swindoll, he does a great job helping us understand some of these. The great prostitute, in addition to its desire to seduce us, it, also, uh, it is also the source of all false economies, governments, and religions that draws its inspiration from, from pride and self-sufficiency. Nations, uh, the, the term many waters is used uh, in, in this chapter. It represents nations and people groups around the world under the influence of this false system. That's not Christ followers, that's those who re- reject Christ. The, the beast, we, we met the beast back in chapter 13. The beast represents the Antichrist, who is an imitation of Jesus, is the ruler of this worldwide empire and object of anti-God worship. Though much debated, this is the seven heads, which is much debated. The seven world empires could stand for world empires in opposition to God and his people. Um, many people think these are, the, these are the, the empires that were represented. Those empires existed a long time ago. There have been empires that have come since that time. There have always been empires that have been used by the enemy of God to pull people away from God. <clears throat> seven mountains. Ancient Rome uh, is built on, that seven mountains is mentioned, ancient Rome is built on seven hills, so Cincinnati, but, but uh, this is, but this is, this is Rome. It came to represent the city of man in contrast to the city of God. Uh, the eighth king, this is so confusing, but the Antichrist is considered the eighth king, also the seventh king, because the Antichrist goes through like a counterfeit death and resurrection. So he's both the seventh and the eighth king. And then ten horns, ten political powers that will unite to empower the Antichrist, turning authority over to him. The ten, so many people have tried to figure out who the ten, what, what countries represent the ten horns. Is it Russia? Is it China? Is it Syria? Is it... And, and, Nobody's ever done that well. So nobody really knows for sure. It's just hard to understand. My point in showing you all of this is to simply point out that Satan is willing to do anything in the world to wage war against God's people. His goal is to pull us away from God, to get us sucked into the world system. This fall, we're going to be... um, this fall, we're going to, once we're done with Revelation, we're going to get into a study of the book of Revelation, Paul's letter, to the, uh, uh, Paul's letter to, the, to the Ephesians. And some of you know, once you get into the sixth chapter, now we're talking about um, spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And this is, this, is what, this is what Paul writes in chapter six. Maybe you're familiar with it. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of this unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. It's so easy to think at times we're, we're fighting against people. We're not fighting. You may think at times we're fighting against people. That's, another, that's a subject for another time. But we are fighting against spiritual power, unseen spiritual powers, and that, that's our true enemy. The enemy, Satan, has been at work since when? Genesis chapter 3. And his work is, uh, is, is far and wide. Now, it's pretty cool in a few weeks, a couple weeks, we'll be getting to Revelation chapter 20. That's where we get to say goodbye to Satan forever. So make sure you're here for that. But uh, Satan is, uh, you know, the different words that are used means to throw between. That's the word devil, throw between. That's where you get to throw a monkey wrench in the works. Um, he tries to throw a monkey wrench in the works of God and in, in the works of our lives. 
He's also called Satan, the, the, the adversary. That's what it means. He's also called the tempter, the wicked one, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren, the god of this age, the serpent who originally tempted Adam and Eve. And, and, and he will use the world system, the prostitute, Babylonianism, to allure us away from doing what is right and good. He will attempt to lead people to th think they don't need a savior, to think they don't need God, to fool us into thinking that we should not live in light of eternity. But even though Satan uh, has had a long leash, C.S. Lewis, I said this before, C.S. Lewis uh, you know, says that Satan is on a leash. He's on a long leash, but it is a leash. He's, a, he's, had, a, he's had a lot of leash. He's had the ability to do a lot of damage. But what we're learning in Revelation is that he is always under the control of God. And Jesus has the final key to victory. And by the way, next week, Jesus returns. You won't want to miss that. I mean, literally, you won't want to miss Jesus' return. That's next week. <clears throat> this, is what, this is what it says in chapter 17. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. That, that, that means the nations of the world, the people who stand opposed to God. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the Lamb. And that, that war happens next week. That's Armageddon next week. And then Jesus comes. Together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings and, is, and, and his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. That's the victory that is ours in Christ. That happens next week. Between this day and whatever day that is that, that Christ comes again, remember, the, the, the enemy is strong. And he will use the world system to allure us and get us to give up on God and seek to pull us away from worshiping God, which we are called to do. But the enemy knows he's defeated. On the cross, his doom is sure. His end is for sure. In two weeks, after chapter 19, chapter 20, we'll see him bound and cast into the fiery lake of burning sulfur forever. We'll talk more about what hell is in a couple weeks. But for now, let's be like August Landmesser or Mordecai standing strong or like those dear Afghan Christians in churches who are having to face the Taliban. Let's, be, let's, let's do what we're calling our, our high school students to do as they go out to college or to work somewhere, where to, to be on guard, to stand firm in the faith, to be courageous, to be strong, and to do everything in love. Let's pray together. Jesus, you stood strong in the face of opposition. You even went to the cross. And you say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Would you give us the wisdom and the strength to do just that, even when it's difficult? 
when we find ourselves being seduced by the world or we find ourselves being tempted by the enemy, give us the humility of wisdom and strength to turn to you. We need your help. Between this day and that day, when you come again, help us to stand firm. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we end um, each uh, of our services, as we're going through Revelation, we end with a benediction. If you can stand, please stand with me and we'll read it to Read it together. Here we go. Let's read together. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Have a great rest of the day. Look to Christ.